Hello everyone, and welcome to another podcast. As you might know, my name is Daly. I'm here together with Kai and Dr. Martin Berger. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. How long did you travel to get here? Um, not that long. I had to take a train for about 50 minutes. Okay. Well, then I had to ride my bike, but you know, <laughs> it's not that far. Nah, because where did you come from? I live in Amsterdam. Ah, okay. Have you always lived in Amsterdam? Yeah, I was born there. I was raised there. I started studying here and I thought, well, you know, four years up and back to Leiden <laughs> is doable. And that's turned into more than 15 years. <laughs> so. And why did you choose Leiden to go study then? Um, because when I started studying, I always knew that I was going to, well, always, I, I always thought that I was going to study archaeology uh, and I was always interested in Latin America. Uh, Leiden was the only place I could do that. So if I wanted to stay in Holland, it was going to be Leiden. So I did. Fair. Yeah. Um, we always start these podcasts off with rapid fire questions. So do you prefer camping or hotels? Hotels. Sorry. <laughs> I am um, a, a bit of a luxury person. <laughs> At least that's what my wife tells me. But um, yeah, hotels. Uh, beach or forest? That's a good question. That depends on what country those are in. Um, in general, I'd say forest. What's your favorite food? Everything. <laughs> uh, primarily cake. Cake. Uh, what kind yeah. of cake? What kind of cake? Every cake. I uh, Chocolate cake, I guess. Uh, is a passion I share with my son, actually. <laughs> but he's three years old, so I try to not give him too much, which is good to also discipline myself. And do you prefer books or movies? Books, I would say. Do you have a favorite book? I find that very difficult because, well, I I like movies as well, of course, but I tend to forget which movies I liked, and I have that to a lesser extent with books as well. So um, I recently have been reading a lot of work by Kurt Vonnegut, which I really, really enjoyed, uh, especially Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle. Um, I really like Bukowski. Um, so, yeah, I would say favorite book by those authors, but not a specific book. Um, what's your favorite music genre? I grew up listening to a lot of punk music uh, and hip-hop. Um, and then sort of the hip hop gradually faded away and I listened to punk. But then since I'm officially middle aged now, <laughs> um, I also listen to a lot of singer songwriter. I really enjoy listening to reggae. So I would say my, my taste is very eclectic and the sort of the one constant throughout the past 20 years has been punk music. Do you have any pets? I do not have any pets. Would you like any pets? I would not like to have any pets. <laughs> I've never had a pet. And, really? Uh, I have enough responsibility taking care of my toddler, so <laughs> I don't need an extra pet. I think my toddler would like a pet, but yeah, bad luck for him. Mm. But are you a dog or a cat person? Ooh, I would say I am a dog person. Respectable. So you work as an assistant professor here at Leiden. Um, what does this mean? So I, st I started at this working at this university last August, so I've only been here not even a year. Um, even though I did my like my bachelor's and my master's and my PhD here, I've been working at uh, Museum Museum Volkerkunde, Museum of Ethnology here in Leiden. Uh, before I came here, um, so I've recently only started sort of coming into the university as a professional, as a teacher, as a, as a, as a lecturer and a researcher. So in principle, this means that I do you know teaching and research and then some other sort of administrative stuff. Um, but for the past months, I've been focusing mostly on teaching because it's my first year here. It was Corona, you know, everything needed twice as much work. 
Um, so I teach three courses, uh, mostly related to museum studies. Uh, well, at least two of them are related to museum studies. The other is a general introduction to archaeology. Uh, it's called Archaeology Past and Future. It's the first course, I guess, BA1 students have. Um, but also there I try to sort of teach about, you know, heritage topics and, and things that um, I think should be integral to archaeology. I don't believe in this sort of division between heritage and archaeology. I think it's bullshit. Um, but I uh, try to also bring that across to my students and they can do with that whatever they like. Um, and then I try to do research, but my research is a bit all over the place um, because working as a curator before, um, you don't really have time for research. You basically do research as part of making exhibitions or part of project working or whatever. And then you have your own personal research, which you do on the weekends and the evenings and stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I'm happy to talk about my research, but it takes a lot of shapes and forms, I guess. <laughs> have you always wanted to get into teaching? or? I feel like I've always liked teaching. Like uh, most of my classes are discussion based. So I like to not just stand there and tell people what to think or what to know or whatever. Um, but um, I try to have discussions as, you know, the main form of learning. Uh, and I think that worked great. I like I learned a lot actually from having those discussions in class myself about my own preconceptions, about ways I see things. Um, cool. So you started your bachelor's degree in archaeology. When did you make the switch to missiology and heritage? Like when I study here, which is so I started here in 2004. Uh, which is a long time ago. Um, feels like a long time ago <laughs> as well. Um, like museum studies wasn't really a thing at this faculty. There was one course um, on museum studies, uh, which um, I guess you had to follow only if you did Latin American archaeology, uh, which was taught by Lara von Bruckhofer, who later became my boss at the at the Museum Volkerkund, who's now the director of the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. Um, so I did a... I just did a bachelor in archaeology, basically, uh, and I followed one course on museums. And I was never really, to be honest, thinking of working in a museum because I didn't think I didn't really see it as an option because it was was not something that was offered to me here at the faculty. Um, but then after I finished my MA, uh, I did an internship when uh, Folkenkund was doing a Maya exhibition uh, on the ancient Maya culture, primarily ancient, but also contemporary to a certain extent. Uh, and I found that I really liked that, so I applied for a job there. I was just extremely lucky that something <laughs> opened up that fit my profile <laughs> and to also then get that job um so yeah as i said i don't really think there's a switch there necessarily i think it's a different approach to the same kind of issues and topics and, and, and data so um so i don't really believe in that divide between archaeology on the one hand and heritage and the other yeah that's cool and um how, are you still working at Volkerkunde or so just... I'll be there for another two days, actually, oh, wow. <laughs> next <laughs> next Monday and the Monday after, and then I, my contract is up. Um, for now, I'm there for one day a week, uh, finishing up an Aztecs exhibition uh, that is going to open in August at Folkekunde, which you all should obviously come to. <laughs> um, it will open the 6th of August uh, after it comes from Vienna, uh, where it is now, and before that was in Stuttgart in, in Germany. Um, and uh, I might be working on... Uh, an exhibition on Amazonia that's coming up at Volkenkunde, but that's still all very preliminary. So I'm, I, I would probably do that working from here, you know, as a consultant for, for the museum or whatever. Uh, but I, I find that I find it sort of difficult to let go to a certain extent <laughs> because these are projects that I've been working on for years and then sort of letting them go and say, okay, bye-bye, is not something I'm good at, I have learned. Um, 
So you would rather stay until like August, finish this exhibition, and then, or... Yeah, I mean, most of my work is actually finished because most of the content, like I don't have to hammer in the nails that build sort of the backdrop <laughs> of the, which is good because I'm terrible at like, like as we say in Dutch, I have two left hands. Um, but um, yeah, but it's actually really nice to change to a different environment. Um, I'd worked at the museum for more than 10 years, uh, which is, you know, a significant amount of time. Um, and considering realistically that there's not so many jobs I can have in Holland <laughs> that have to do with my specialty. Um, I decided to apply here and was lucky enough to, to get the job as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy about the switch. Cool. Nice. What's the favorite thing you did working at the museum? I guess I have to pick two uh, because I really can't decide. <laughs> um, one is an ongoing research project that I'm doing on uh, turquoise, the use of the, 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 the mineral turquoise in, in Mexico, uh, primarily Mexico and ancient Mesoamerica more broadly. Uh, and how that mineral was mined and then put into mosaics and what sort of the cultural meaning of that was on the one hand. Uh, but on the other hand, my specialization, I would say, is how that material then is distributed throughout museums around the world through the art market. So how sort of looting happens and then those pieces go from, you know, the hands of a farmer who finds them in his field to a middleman to someone who makes a you know, shitload of money off of it, selling it to museums and private collectors. Um, so one of the projects that I want to do in the future is to use sort of big data analysis uh, to see if we can trace sort of patterns in these distributions of collections to better understand um, in the end why certain museums have certain collections uh, and also to better understand what the influence actually of the art market was on how we as archaeologists work because you know when you go to a museum you see a bunch of pieces right and, like you go to Falkenkunde you go to the Latin American exhibition, you're going to see Aztec stuff, Maya stuff, Inca stuff, etc. Um, but what isn't immediately clear is that one, all of that stuff that you see at Volkenkunde comes from the art market. That two, you know, the art market was the one who decided what they were going to sell to which museums. And so in the end, that about, you know, 95 of the pieces, 95% of the pieces that you see on display um, all come from, you know, art markets, a sort of art dealers who, who sold them at some point to the museum. And so they define what you think of as Mesoamerican culture, right? It's not so much the museum, it's actually the art market that shapes your image, that shapes the representation of what, how we see other cultures. Um, and since academics in the market rightfully don't get along in general, they, they did get along in the past, um, that, that sort of importance of the market and of the commercial value has sort of been written out of our disciplinary histories. So we tend to think of, you know, archaeological knowledge as created by academics. But I feel that that's not entirely true. I feel that there's a lot of sort of other actors at stake who create our knowledge and who create our visions and representations of other cultures that haven't been acknowledged in the past. Um, for maybe for good reason to a certain extent, but I feel like we need to acknowledge that commercial aspect that there was to it to really then also sort of decolonize our minds and understand what we are really looking at. Um, so that's a very long answer to one thing, <laughs> because the other thing I was going to say um, was that I did a large project in Suriname uh, in 2016 and 17, in which we um, we found a manuscript. And when I'm saying we, it was actually not me. There's people at the museum. It was the librarian together with Jimmy Mons, who worked at this faculty and then at Folkekunde, who's now at NWO. Um, found a box in the library of Folkenkunde which had a manuscript in it which documented indigenous Cariña, so Carib culture from Suriname. Um, and Laura van Broekhoven, again, who was at this faculty, is now at Oxford, 
um, set up a project together with other people from around here to read that manuscript together with uh, sort of knowledge bearers of the Cariña to understand if that document held sacred and secret information that shouldn't be shared with, you know, people who are not initiated. Um, and because of that project, I went to Suriname a lot. I, I spent a lot of time in indigenous communities there. Um, and it was just a really fascinating project. It, it, like, it taught me a lot about how sort of these dynamic work, how people see the museum, what the role of museums can be in community work, etc. And, you know, I was in Suriname for like eight weeks, so it was <laughs> like it was generally just nice to be there. Um, so I would say those are the main, the, you know, the two topics or the projects that I work on that, that were closest to my heart. The two also involve um, ethnographic research into that project, and how did you um, actively, perhaps, you know, contribute to that? So, so sort of the background to this project was that we found this book basically, and we didn't know what to do with it, and we wanted to make sure that we didn't just outright publish it while there was sensitive information in it, right? Um, and so, what we did, uh, and again, I'm saying we, but I was definitely not the prime mover in this in this project. Um, was contact a self-organization of indigenous village leaders in Suriname and ask them to select people who could work with us because we're like, okay, if we select the people, it's still sort of weirdly colonialist. So if they are sort of representatives chosen by the people themselves, then it's more acceptable. Um, and so the object of the, of the project was not so much to conduct ethnographic research as it was to see how we could res you know create respectable way you know, respectful ways um, of publishing this material if publishing was even on the charts like we were also happy to accept that it wasn't on the charts um, and interestingly or sadly or whateverly um, the outcome of the project was that it the thing is still not published because um, there is no sort of a general agreement in this organization that we contacted about publication or not um, because it's become very political which is normal which is fine also um, but it is not helpful if we're trying to move forward this cultural project um, so uh, it wasn't as such a an ethnographic project where I went out to look at people and how they live their lives basically which I mean ethnography has a, has a sort of tendency to do um, it was more a collaborative project in which I was basically the student to a large extent because I don't speak Ariña. I learned some over the course of, you know, some months, but not too much. Um, I don't know the traditional culture. I'm not initiated as a shaman. So, I mean, all of these, all of this knowledge I don't have. I was just there as a document, documentalist, basically documenting what other people were saying and learning from them. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a project that... Um, I would love to repeat again, but I think what would be important is to include more young people also, uh, because now it really stayed within this sort of circle of older people who have no knowledge, and there's no knowledge transmission to younger people, which I think is sad. Uh, even though we created sort of an education thing for, for like grade school, for like primary school, um, but I don't know to what extent that's still used. In the course, you also mentioned that, and you gave a um, the hypothetical situation of um, having a Nazi museum mm -hmm. from a Nazi's perspective, mm -hmm. then how would you go about incorporating um, that person's opinion in your personal uh, work? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess I am not a free speech fundamentalist uh, at all, to be very honest. <laughs> I do believe that there are certain opinions which should not exist. Um, and I think, you know, 
Nazi extremism <laughs> or, well, any kinds of Nazism uh, or fascism are among opinions that shouldn't exist. That being said, if you work in a national institution, um, you come into contact with people of all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, so sometimes, even though I've been lucky to never um, run into an actual Nazi <laughs> or an openly pro-Nazi person uh, while doing my work, um, I do think that as a national museum, you do have a sort of res responsibility to um, include those worldviews which are not exclusionary and discriminatory and hurtful themselves. Uh, and I think that's where I would draw the line uh, personally. And I actually, I just I followed a course last week for my uh, basis qualificatieonderzoek, so my university teaching qualification, which was on inclusive education. And I, I asked exactly this question. I was, I, so they wanted me to to send in a learning question. I was like, yeah, well, my politics, my personal politics are quite radical, considered as radical at least by many people. Um, and <laughs> I have no issue with that, but also I don't want to force my opinion upon my students. And I also want to create an environment in my classrooms in which people who do not agree with me, students who don't agree with me, um, also feel welcome and also feel valued and also feel like their, their contributions are appreciated. And this is especially difficult because um, in the class that I taught in which you were also in Kai, I felt like there was a general tendency for people to agree. Like I would say that many of the students that were in that class generally shared many of my views. Um, if there would have been, let's say, four or five or six students who didn't share that view, that makes it even more difficult if the majority of the classroom feels like that. Um, so I do think sort of teaching in politics is becoming more, or politics in teaching, better said, um, is 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 an issue and is an issue we should think about and address and i mean so yeah, yeah. so com something completely different mm -hmm. um do you have any hobbies i did before corona <laughs> 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 then covid well i did before my kid came and then covid came and then i'm like uh what um i used to play basketball before covid started which i haven't done in one and a half years because i can't because i'm old mm. Um, so I wonder how my body will react <laughs> going back to basketball. I'm not sure. I used to play in a band before my kid came, but I'm not doing that anymore. So now I my hobby are like, hobbies like playing Legos with my kid, I guess. <laughs> um, and in the very little spare time that I have, I like to read a book because that's all you can do in COVID times. Okay. Um, so... This, I would have answered this question very differently <laughs> like one and a half years ago, but yeah. Kind of instrument did you um, play? First I played drums and I played bass. Cool. Um, drums I played, well, dr drums is years ago actually, but it was like this, there was this kind of punk band where everybody just picked up an instrument. We no no nobody know how to play anything. Um, and we didn't have any instruments. And it was, this was like late high school. So I got assigned drums. Um, and so I played drums. Um, which I continue to do for a while. I shit at it, but I don't care. Um, and then bass, like I sort of knew how to play. So um, that's what I played in a, a, a sort of slightly more serious band. <laughs> so do you have any or a dream research or? Mm, I have many. No, I don't have many, but I do, but I don't. Um, I So what is basically mostly on my mind now is creating this sort of research project in which we can use big data to analyze collections because I think this is really the future. I think this is really um, a way of understanding collections on a level that we've never really understood them before. And so not only the collection itself, but the, its ties to the social, political, and economic situation of the world in different 
moments in different places. Um, so I'm hoping to prepare. Like I have to go into this whole funding circus of like MWO and ERC and all this shit. Um, and this is what I'll propose. Well, not in these terms. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, that's what I would um, say. And then another thing is that I, I, I really would like to go to Oaxaca in southern Mexico. I'm a Puebla as well, southern Mexico, let's say. Um, and do sort of oral history field work with older people there about how they remember these, you know, white people coming in and then taking this stuff from the ground, basically. So I think there's a generation of people now who still remembers that sort of boom in the 1950s and 60s. And they will, unfortunately, if they haven't died of COVID, they will die in the coming five to 10 years or even shorter. Um, so I'm thinking of ways of doing that and combining that kind of research with my family also. Um, but so basically travel around to different communities in, in Southern Mexico to understand how the art market not impacted us here, but impacted them there. Um, so that would be another sort of dream research thing, I think. So what mm -hmm. we always do is we post on our Instagram stories an opportunity for people to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And some questions came in this week. I don't know how... Okay, <laughs> I, interesting. I, I am unsure. But <laughs> the first question was, how do we become a curator like you? Well... Literal uh, quote. <laughs> I would say becoming a curator is something like... I was going to say the kids these days, but you are the kids in this respect, so I can't say that. Um, People, much more so than when I was studying, nowadays want to work in museums, which is a really interesting thing to see. I think that museums have gone to like super unsexy to super sexy, and I don't know why it happened, but it happened yeah. while I was working in a museum. Um, and I think one of the things you you want to do if you want to, I don't know, necessarily become a curator but work in a museum is, is do museum internships. Um, and those are not easy to get, um, I realize. Um, but one of the things... And this is also, I'm going to be the coordinator for Heritage inter Internships next year. So this is already me trying to <laughs> tell people who are listening uh, that you've realized that these museum internships are not like field work. It's not like you go out for two, three weeks. You really need to dedicate like a couple of months, not the full week, but like one, two, three days a week to doing these kind of things. Because museum work is extremely complex, uh, depending on the museums that you work in. It might be more or less complex, but... Um, I would say that if you want to become a curator, focus on um, that, Ex you know, sort of exploring if you really want to work in a museum once you've done that internship, if that's still the case. Um, and also um, following courses that are offered to you, which I guess is a sort of really obvious <laughs> answer, which people have thought of themselves as well. Um, but I would say there's definitely not one set path to becoming a curator. And I also don't think that being a curator is the only thing uh, that you can be in a museum. I would, I always say that if you, I always say, it sounds like, like this old guy who's like, oh, um, I, I personally think that if you really want to make a strong impact in terms of decolonization at museums, for example, you shouldn't be a curator, you should go into marketing. You should work in the marketing department and help the marketing people understand that it's not like the audience is just not like only 50 plus white people who want to see a certain thing. There's a broad audience out there that wants to see different things in different ways um so also consider that like consider different career paths that in the end will help you to do a sort of sort of job that you enjoy um and so don't focus just on being curator also because there's like five curator jobs in the netherlands <laughs> with archaeology so yeah that makes sense yeah what drew you to become a specialist in latin america 
I went on a holiday with my parents when I was 10 years old to Mexico. Uh, and I saw Maya temples and I was like, fuck, this is amazing. Um, and I basically decided then and there that that's what I wanted to study. And my parents were like, yeah, whatever, you're 10. Like, you don't know shit. <laughs> um, but somehow it stuck with me. And then after high school, I, I took a gap year. Um, and I went to Ecuador to work there as a volunteer in the rainforest. And I thought it was amazing. Um, and I wanted to do actually South American. So let's say Andean archaeology. But that wasn't really offered here at Leiden. So I switched into Mesoamerican American archaeology, which was like my first interest in the first place because I went to Mexico and saw all these Maya pyramids. Um, so, yeah, it's really been uh, a sort of a lifelong interest of mine for some reason that I cannot explain. <laughs> um, but it was really what lit the spark for me was going to Mexico, seeing Maya temples. Um, and just my parents just being really... My, my, so my, my, my parents are not really... F my, my dad is from Romania, my mom is from Limburg, but she's sort of also from, from other countries. Um, and so they traveled a lot, like I have family all over the world, and it was also traveling that sort of helped me see that one thing I really wanted to do in a career was travel, um, if possible. Um, back then, I didn't realize how bad for the environment all that travel was, but okay. Um, and I always had a special interest for Latin America because, I don't know, I just really liked it. I like the food. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how are you feeling about the Elgin marbles? How do I? I think they're beautiful. No, that's not the answer you want. <laughs> I don't know. It was no, 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 I know. <laughs> I think so. The Elgin marbles, for those of you who don't know, listening to this, are uh, in the British Museum, and they were taken from the Acropolis in the, I think, late 18th century, if not the beginning of the 19th, by Lord Elgin slash Elgin. I think Elgin. Um, and they're displayed at the British Museum, and basically Greece has been asking for repatriation of these for a long time, um, and actually built a museum at the foot of the Acropolis that has space for those pieces, which I think is an amazing statement. It's like going, okay, fuck you, we're building this museum now, we're just going to already put them in, even though we don't have them. Um, my personal opinion is that um, they are, and this is again, it's going to be this a weird political answer, but they're only sort of the iconic sort of example of what is a much larger problem right i mean I'm, we all know this like cultural ownership in the 20th century is about to change um there's going to be if you guys decide to be curators and you become a curator like me uh in 10 years you're going to be living in a different world i think when it comes to cultural ownership that's especially true for ethnographic objects that were part of sort of the colonial system but also um of the Elgamart bills, which were part of a different colonial system within Europe also. I have no strong opinion about whether they should remain in London or should go back to Athens, because I'm not a specialist, um, but I would think that um, they should be in, it, it, it makes sense for me to be, for them to be in Athens. Um, what makes even more sense for me would be because they're going, no, they're not going to be put back on the Acropolis. They're going to go into a museum, right? So they're not really, really returned to the original context. What for me would make most sense if, like I said before, people just all got along and we could find normal <laughs> solutions to this, where in which um, most people have access to this material in an equitable way because you know the whole most people have access is also used very much as a retentionist thing so a lot of people come to the british museum so more people see it i think that's nonsense um but i think that um i think that fair and just solutions can be found um if people just respect each other's background um 
And I think that's the whole heart of the discussion around repatriation is that historically there's been a lack of respect from the part of, um, you know, colonizing nation states towards other people. Uh, and if we can fix that, then things hopefully will move along. I've heard that you have also an opinion about collectors. I mean, I feel like I'm now being put on the spot. <laughs> I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily feel like I have an opinion, a very strong opinion on collectors. Though I realize that I know that other people think of me differently. <laughs> um, I personally think, just like I said before, on nation states, I think that also works on a personal level. I think you shouldn't collect stuff of which you know um, that it has a problematic provenance. Um, and I also think that. I mean, I'm a, my pr problem in this, I guess, is that I'm a very, l I'm not a materialist person. I don't have many things. I don't care for having things. I just live basically with the clothes on my back. Um, but um, how people have come to see me because of the way that I teach um, is someone who's very anti-collectors. Um, that might be true for a certain type of collector, which is just like the hoard everything, look at me, bling bling collector. Um, but I don't mind people collecting things if they are, um, you know, as long as they were acquired in a sort of equitable, fair and just and blah, blah, blah way. Um, like my dad collects everything, literally everything. Well, no artifacts and stuff but he collect like sand from all over the world and like stones i see my son come back from daycare with his, like pockets filled with stones that he's collected and he's like shit you're just like your grandpa um so this urge to collect i know on a personal <laughs> sort of level and um yeah i would say when it comes to collecting archaeology we all know that sort of many of the pieces that you can acquire on the market come from looting which has destroyed the original context and as archaeologists i think we should all find that problematic uh so that's the short answer to it yeah um and i had another question about the turquoise skull that turned out to be fake mm. but so the turquoise skull was like a super famous i would say uh, artifact in a museum and then it turned out to be fake and I mean, that happens sometimes, things can be fake, but I was very surprised because I read that you said you don't really mind it being fake. Could you could you explain why that is? Because to me, that sounds kind of... Fake. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. It, it's, uh, yeah, I don't Politically know. correct. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh. Unexpected. <laughs> yeah, uh, unexpected. That's what I would say. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is part of the research that I've been doing at Falkenkunde that I've I will continue to do. I've been doing it for like 10 years and I'm super slow. So at some point this will be finished. Maybe not. Um, this is indeed a human skull decorated with turquoise mosaics um, with spondylus shell as well, which is at Falkenkunde. It used to be like one of the highlights of the Latin American exhibitions. It's still on display, so you can go and see it at Falkenkunde. Um, and I did a whole research project, which is sort of still ongoing, um, but I never have money to do sampling, <laughs> um, which... For the Leiden skull, it turned out that it was made with an old skull with uh, old turquoise, which was actually made in, you know, Mesoamerica America in a post-classic period. But that the glue which was on it was shellac, which um, is not a Mesoamerican pre-Columbian product that was, you know, used for art restorations in the 20th century a lot. Um, so we concluded not only because that 
particular skull had that um, adhesive, but also because other skulls that looked extremely similar had that adhesive, that it was probably some sort of forger's industry in the southern in southern Mexico, um, in which possibly a dentist and his wife, you know, on the weekends would go out and dig up sites, and then from the sites they dug up, create new things, which I think is a fascinating story. Um, and that fascinating story is actually also the reason that I was, I genuinely wasn't sad when I learned that, you know, that let's say the thing that we see today, even though I have a problem calling it a thing because it is a human skull and it is an individual, um, is not how it was made by Mesoamerican people. Um, and, and, and I really truly believe that sort of the story that it tells sort of that composite artifact that we see now, the story that that tells is in a way much more interesting than the story that would have told um, if it had been genuine, if it had been original. Um, because it tells us a story not only about, you know, the creation of turquoise, about grave robbing, about the art market, about the way that things are collected here, about representations. Like, it's not a coincidence that this is a human skull, right? A lot In public sort of perception, you see this in Ap Apocalypto by Mel Gibson, for example, um, indigenous Mesoamerican people are seen as barbaric, as bloodthirsty, as sacrificers. And so it's not a coincidence that what he's going to sell as a forgery is a skull. So I think the artifact as we see it today tells us so many stories about not just other people, but about ourselves as well, and ourselves as an institution, ourselves as individuals, ourselves as sort of positioned people in the world, um, that I really don't mind it. Like, I generally don't mind. Um, I wrote an article on this research, which you can find online. Um, and there I explore sort of how, why I said during the original presentation on this research, sadly, the skull is not real. Because at that point I said, and I was like, yeah, why did I use the word sadly, like sad, like it, it sort of negatively Im impacted me. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that it would have been a unique piece if it were real. But then later on, I realized, well, it's still a unique piece, <laughs> just a unique, different story. Um, so for me, I don't really believe in this idea of art just for art's sake, um, at least not when it comes to ethnographic and archaeological pieces. I think we're trying to piece together stories that tell us something about our place in the world. And this artifact does exactly that. So I hope that's an answer. That's definitely an answer. Yeah. Imagine it's June 2022, a year from now. What would have to happen in that year for it to be a success? To be very honest, so I'm having another kid in, in, in August, and the only thing I ask of life is that next year I have a healthy kid. And I am also still mentally sane because for my first kid, I had quite a few <laughs> issues with not sleeping. Um, so that would be the primary answer for me like i realize you're asking for work-related stuff but you know no <laughs> it's just, not at all it's just my family yeah. at the end of the podcast we always give the opportunity to promote something do you have something to promote i do have something to promote so one thing that i want to promote is this aztecs exhibition that i worked on which i personally really like so i hope other people <laughs> like also uh and it's opening in august at museum folkland so if you want to go do go uh, i think students can go in for free now uh, which they couldn't for a while but now they can um you might have to pay like a, an additional like two to three euros to get into the exhibition but it's not like an exorbitant fee um, and the other thing I'd like to promote is that I, uh, as I mentioned before, I gave a, I 
taught a course where students had to create exhibitions and if it's okay with the students i would like to share those also with the broader community uh so look out for some of those because i think there's going to be some like really cool exhibitions on material that's actually from our faculty um so i would like to have not not be the only person to see those basically uh so i'll see if i can get them like in a newsletter or something because i think there's going to be some cool shit yeah yeah when that comes out there we'll definitely promote it for sure awesome so stay tuned for that thank you very much for listening thank um, you for inviting me yeah welcome thank you for being here We will be back with one or two more podcasts before the summer break. So make sure you stay tuned and we'll see you on the next one. Bye.